Welcome to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. If you're like me, the chances are good that Jimmy Webb's songs were one channel of the soundtrack of your life. He's written some of the biggest songs in popular music. Galveston, Wichita Lineman, The Worst Thing That Could Happen, Up, Up, and Away. I could list dozens more Jimmy Webb songs, but that would just leave less time for you to hear him telling the story of his life and his work. And the same goes for his awards and recognitions, too. So just to be brief, he won his first Grammy Award in 1967, and he's been receiving Grammys and Grammy nominations all the way up until this year. He was the youngest person ever inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and last year Rolling Stone named him one of the top 50 songwriters of all time. At age 71, Webb continues to tour. His voice isn't quite what it used to be, which he candidly acknowledges with a smile. But Rolling Stone magazine said that today he sounds like an old Mustang heading through a treacherous yet often gorgeous landscape. When he played Eddie's Attic in Decatur last fall, his most recent appearance in Georgia, he frequently stopped in mid-song to cough or clear his voice and to issue a casual apology. But then he'd plunge back in, determined to hit the highest notes in his music. It was a magical evening with a guy who seemed to simply be sitting around playing for old friends. Webb came to the Two-Way Street studio last fall to talk about his just-published memoir, The Cake and the Rain. The paperback edition will be published this summer. As we began, Webb talked to me about his introduction to the piano. I really got my musical training in the Southern Baptist Church. My father was a minister, and it was really my mother's incentive and her iron will and sometimes, you know, her anger that kept me at the piano every day uh, from the age of six until she died. She died when I was 16. She was 36. But she was really the author of all this because, you know, we had a contract. You know, it's fashionable in this day and age for parents to have contracts with their children. And my contract with my mom was that if I played the piano every day for 30 minutes, she wouldn't hit me with a stick. So (laughs) (laughs) it seemed to work out pretty well. And when I was 12 years old, I was, um, she thought I had achieved the heights. I was as high as you could go. I was on the organ bench at the First Baptist Church. And as far as she was concerned, her mission was was completed. When you were uh, young, uh, there are two stories in the book that I thought were worth talking about. You grew up in Elk City, Oklahoma is the name of the town, right? Is that right? Yes. Elk City, Oklahoma. I couldn't wait to get out of that one elk town. But you tell a story about a couple of musical influences that I think are worth exploring a bit. You talked about one day being out on a on a, I think, a tractor, a plow of some sort, and you you had the radio, a little, I assume, transistor radio. Yes. And you heard a song. You turn around, look at me, right? On Crest Records, yes, uh, by a fellow that I'd never heard of named Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. The song itself, it's, there is someone walking beside me. Beside me, turn around, look at me. There is someone walking behind you. Turn around, look at, look me. at me. It's a beautiful song. Yeah, it's really pretty. There is someone 
said to yourself, dear God, please allow me to someday write a song this wonderful and to have it performed by somebody like this guy who I'd never heard before. Yeah, I was down, <laughs> I was down on my knees by my bed most nights saying, you know, please, Lord, let me, you know, this is something I want to do. And it was really kind of my secret because my father, there was no way he was going to, uh, he was going to encourage me to be, to go into the evil world of entertainment. Secular, mu secular, secular music, music, yeah. Yeah, because uh, the gift that I had been given, in his view, was a gift from God, and it should be used, you know, in, in the church. And that seemed reasonable in a certain way, but at the same time, I was incredibly interested in Burt Bacharach and Hal David and... And some some of the other and when uh, when the Beatles came along, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney and uh, John Hartford who had written Gentle on My Mind. All these people were were. It was a constant reminder to me that there was a whole world. There was a yeah. whole thing going on. There was another song when you were a kid that really probably a little older. I I would guess, but it also lured you in. Um, uh, a Beach Boys song. In my room, you said you heard it played on a radio at some distance and just kind of followed the sound. When we, when we moved to California, my father moved us from Oklahoma to California, uh, in the suburb of San Bernardino, or Purdue, as we call it. Um, and we settled in this kind of uh, what seemed at the time a very lush neighborhood, lots of green, lots of sprinklers, lots of landscaping. Really, it was just post-war, you know, GI loan housing, but the flowers were beautiful and the palm trees were beautiful. That particular summer, that was the summer of 1962, and... Uh, I believe that's right, 62 or 63. Anyway, um, all the windows in the neighborhood were open. All the sprinklers were on. What Joni Mitchell called the hissing of summer lawns. Um, and wafting from house to house were Beach Boys songs. I mean, it was, it was literally just part of the air that you, that you would breathe there including the scent of the orange blossoms coming off of the groves and everything. It was just a little moment of magic where I, uh, I asked my next-door neighbor who was out back washing his van over, over our back fence, washing his van, and he had a couple of surfboards up on top of them. And I asked him, I said, hey, I said, uh, what are those things up on your car, you know? And he said... <laughs> Dude, he said, those are surfboards, you know? <laughs> Welcome I, to Southern California, yeah. Jimmy. <laughs> and he said, uh, and I said, well, what, and what's that record you keep playing? And he said, 
dude, those, <laughs> you don't know the Beach Boys? And I said, well, I, I've, heard, I've heard like a couple of records. He said, well, come to my room. He says, I've got all their albums. So I went right in there and, and heard In My Room and Surfer Girl. And this is a theory that I've heard that I, that I happen to agree with, is that, that the sound really originated with the, with, with the group, the, the Four Freshmen. And then there was another similar group called the Letterman. And the Beach Boys were like that sort of uh, collegiate quartet sound, but it had the influence of of the surfing movement behind it. But and, also like you. And it had Brian. It, that was what I was going <laughs> to say. Like you, it, Brian Wilson and you, it strikes me, have some strong similarities in that you can take uh, fairly traditional pop, popular music and expand on it, uh, turn it into a creative force that is beyond what it started out as. And you're very similar in that way, I think. Is that a fair statement? Well, um, listen, that's, a, that's an extreme compliment. But uh, Brian and I have always been good friends. And uh, I can remember him coming to my, when I lived in California, in, the, in, in Sino, I, I celebrated my 30th birthday, and I invited Brian, and I thought, he'll never come. He'll never leave his house and, and come all the way out here to the valley to see me. And he showed up um, in a bathrobe and came in <laughs> and gave me a bottle of champagne, you know. My, my, I think it's... Um you were writing songs, secular music, the kind of music your father really didn't want you to write yeah. uh, by the time you were a teenager. It's interesting to me that one of the songs I think you wrote as a teenager, but it didn't become, didn't surface in a big way until many, many years later, was a song that Art Garfunkel recorded, right? It, it, was, it was a little song uh, called uh, Someone Else, and... Uh, Artie got interested in it. I and I don't know how, how these things happen, but I was I was fiddling around with it and singing it. And uh, he said, "What's that?" And I said, oh, I, "That's the very that's the first song I ever wrote." And he said, "Really?" And I said, "He said when?" And I said, "Well, it was in Oklahoma City. I was 13 years old." He said, "I love it." He says, "I want to cut it." I said, "Oh no, <laughs> please say say it's not true." He said, yeah, I really love it. And I I said, well, okay. And, you know, I mean, it really it sort of bothered me because I thought, well, this is really a naive song. Yeah, know? but this is post-Simon and Garfunkel, so yeah. it's many years later, yeah. and that song surfaces and he chooses to record Yeah, it. he chose it, and uh, I said, all I ask is that you put 1957 in parentheses after it. <laughs> Did you really? That's the year I wrote it. Another song you wrote as a teenager is a song that came to you, the lyrics certainly came to you, as you were driving down 
the highway in California, Southern California. Santa Ana Freeway. Santa Ana Freeway. And um, a song started coming to you that has gone on to become one of the, certainly one of the biggest hits in your career. What was that song? Well, um, the the words and music sort of began to circulate in my brain as I'm driving down to meet with some of my fraternity brothers in Newport Beach. And it was this little, simple little verse thing. Um, this time we almost made the pieces fit, didn't we? And I kept driving, and then I came up with another line. This time we almost made some sense of it, didn't we, girl? And I'm just merrily going along. And the first... And, and, before I really know what I'm doing, I've got I've got a whole song, but I don't have any pen, I don't have any paper, I don't have a pencil, and I'm in the middle of this horrific Southern California traffic, and the people are honking at me because I'm wandering from lane to lane, you know, because I'm singing this song. <laughs> Finally, I get down to my where my frat brothers were hanging out at this house in Newport Beach. And he just walked in, and everybody said, hi, Jimmy. I didn't say a thing. I walked straight to the piano. I sat down, and I, and I, I just sang. This time we almost made the pieces fit, didn't we? Sang the whole thing, right? Wow. Sang it just like that, and they're all standing there sort of holding their beers looking like with their mouths hanging open. And that's one of the many iconic songs that you've written. They've been recorded dozens and dozens of times. But I suspect that one of the most thrilling versions of this song was recorded by this guy who gave you credit as he sang it at Royal Albert Hall. I think I know who you mean. This is Jimmy Webb, one of his very quiet, nice moments. This time we nearly made the pieces fit, didn't we, girl? This time we nearly made a go of it. You know, he's he's freely improvising on my lyrics. I noticed that. He, you know, he would he would just sing whatever the heck he wanted to sing. Yeah, was that was all right with you, I imagine. It was okay with me. I never complained. You know, I've seen young writers like really get irate because they go and they say, "Look, uh, I don't want you to change that, you know, uh, some inconsequential line, you know, be to 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 of or you know, arguing over like uh, many words or hyphenated words or whatever. And sometimes uh, I've seen them actually sabotage the recording session because it, it wasn't being done exactly the way they wanted it done. I never did that in my life. These but, were days before <laughs> you uh, were actually, for the most part, uh, you still were primarily a songwriter and, and hadn't hadn't quite emerged yet as the singer you became. And one of the groups that you produced and recorded that I think is really fun to listen to is a group called The Contessas. 
Those were my girls. Those were your girls. And yeah. w- one of the reasons I thought they were interesting is because you, you, you were really enamored early on by the notion of combining strings with rock and roll or R&B or whatever. And the Contessas was an opportunity for you to do that on Absolutely. at least one song, right? Yeah. Well, it was my first... I learned to orchestrate on the fly, really, in the studio. And this was my first orchestration. It's all written in con- for concert instruments because I wasn't up to any transposition. So I had bones, flutes, xylophone, uh, and, of course, the string orchestra, which were, they're all in concert keys. And I didn't know what it was going to sound like. but it- Here's what it sounds like. This is a song <laughs> called This Is Where I Came In. when you hear that all these years later? Well, I, 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 I can remember the day. It was, it was quite thrilling when the, the massed orchestra came in on the chorus. I thought, my God, I can do this. You had to conduct that orchestra, yes, having and, never and, done it before. And also, I'll tell you something else. The band was the wrecking crew. Hal Blaine was there. Uh, Joe Osborne. Larry Nectel, all the guys were Tommy Tedesco. They were all in there. One of the things that's uh, I think fascinating to think about with your career, because today we we think of you as a singer songwriter. Back then, that was not an easy thing for you to become. That you were writing great music for a lot of different artists, but your early attempts to record them yourself were. There were some stumbling moments, yes? Well, I, yes, I had a very difficult, uh, uh, you know, I, in those days I plunged into things without much forethought or planning. And so my first album, I, I had really, I really cut with Freddie Tackett. Which was called? Uh, it was called Words and Music. Let's my- listen. My my voice was a little thin for the radio, and I, and if I and if I when I hear that disc, all I hear is, is is how wide open and vulnerable it was, and if you stacked it up against a Beatles track, the Beatles track would roll over that like a like a tank over a over a toad frog, <laughs> because they had so much their their bass sound was so massive. The mid-range they built up with overdubs, and all this stuff, and that's all the stuff that I don't hear on my record. Well, what now? I know you can look back on that and be somewhat uh, relaxed about it, but that was very 
traumatic for you back then, trying to break through as an artist performing his own music? My second album came <laughs> out and so on, I, and Stereo Review Magazine, because I learned quick, they gave me their award for album of the year. And uh, I had critics, uh, John Landau said in Rolling Stone Magazine that Words and Music was, quote, one of the great undiscovered pop masterpieces of 1971, unquote. So I had, ironically, because I thought the critics were the enemy, but it turned out the critics were my best friends. They really sort of appreciated the records and what I was doing. It was the public. <laughs> damn them. <laughs> it, was the, it was the damn public that was the problem. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, we'll continue my conversation with Jimmy Webb. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting one of my favorite two-way streets. It was a show we recorded last fall with a great singer-songwriter, Jimmy Webb. He's one of the most acclaimed songwriters of his generation. His most important collaboration was with Glenn Campbell, who made mega hits out of any number of Webb songs. But there are a few popular American singers who haven't included Webb in their repertoire. He came to our studio to talk about his memoir, The Cake and the Rain, which will be published in paperback this summer. It's interesting that in the book he devotes a fair amount of time writing about a couple of his lost loves. But when I brought one of them up, he was a little reluctant to talk about her. This is a good time to introduce, if it's all right with you. Yeah. Who is Susan Horton? Well, Susie was my high school sweetheart, you know, uh, there's really not that much to tell. It was it was it was a, a an unrequited love affair. She was the great love of your life when you were well, young. Yeah, is that was, fair to say? When I was young, yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. And the reason I bring her up now is that there were many songs that you wrote in those days that were to some extent inspired by her, including one I believe where you had she had broken your heart again. We've all gone through it in, yeah. in our young lives. And you thought to yourself, why am I in California? I might as well go back to Oklahoma. And you thought about, well, what would that be like, driving back from California to Oklahoma? And this song emerged. By the time I make Oklahoma, she'll be sleeping. She'll turn softly call my name out low. 
she'll cry just to think I'd really leave her. Though time and time I've tried. One of the great, great popular songs. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I, I, I was very, very fortunate that my boss, Johnny Rivers, uh, Johnny Rivers, who ran Soul City Music, had made a recording with Glenn Campbell on Mercury Records in the late 50s, and he remembered Glenn as a really good guy. And when he signed me, he heard By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and he recorded it immediately. At the time, he had a number. Johnny had a number one record called "Poor Side of Town," which yeah. is a lovely record. He wrote that. He called up Al Delore, who was Glenn's producer, and said, "I've got a song over here for you that's going, you know, that's going to change Glenn's life." And Al came over, and he he played it off of his test pressing. And this is the true story, uh, and. Al looked at him and said, I don't get it. He said, why are you playing this song for us? He said, you know it's a hit. And Johnny said, Al, you can only have one number one record at a time. And the truth is, he did it for me, and he did it for Glenn. And here it was, this voice that you had heard as a young boy driving in the field. Yeah. Oh, I my mean, gosh. That's kind of... There were times when I, I actually had out-of-body experiences because I didn't believe what was happening to me. Here's what what's... Uh, so Glenn Campbell records by the time I get to Phoenix. And then he comes back to you. Jimmy, I want a song about an... I need another city song, right? <laughs> yeah, can you write me a song about a town? <laughs> you know? I said, well, I said, could I make it geographical? Oh, no, he said... Well, I said, I don't know about a town song. He said, well, can you make it geographical? And I said, well, let me think about that. I think I might be able to do it. So you write the song, uh-huh. and you call Glenn Campbell up. Say, can you come on over? I've got this song. Let's try it out. And you're apologetic because you say to him, I'm sorry, but we don't ha- I don't have a third verse for this song. Yeah. But what happened? Well, I met him a couple of weeks. Well, I sent it over saying this is unfinished, you know, um, because they kept bothering me. They called me 10 times that day. So I finally sent it over and said, well, I don't think this is done. Love, Jimmy. You know, sent it over. And a, and a couple of weeks went by. I didn't hear from them. I didn't hear from Glenn. I, I ran into him somewhere. I, I can't honestly remember. And he... I said, oh, I guess you guys didn't like that Wichita Lineman song. And Glenn looked at me like, are you crazy? He looked at me and he said, we cut that. And I said, you cut it? And he said, yeah. And I said, but it wasn't finished. And he said, it is now. He wrote a really, really moving guitar solo that that uh, uh, served as the third verse. Yes. He tuned his guitar way down neutral. How, what do you call the kind of tuning? Well, you know, it's it's um, 
it's you you detune it. You know, you you get a, a much lower. You get a bass sound out of a regular guitar. And that became the third verse. But something else interesting happened uh, when you. I, I think you were at your house. Uh, you had an an, an, an organ. Uh, or an organ-like instrument in the house, and it suddenly occurred to you as you were sitting there. It was a church organ. It was an actual church organ. And when we listen to the song, we're going to hear that kind of almost otherworldly, sounds like a satellite out in space that we hear, right? You know why that's interesting? It's because we didn't have synthesizers. I'm a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine Billy Joel is a good friend of yours. Yes. And um, you've said that Billy Joel's understanding of that song was so profound to you that it almost made you cry. Yeah, he said that he, he actually at the Songwriters Hall of Fame one year, he really put me through the mill. He, he deconstructed uh, Wichita Lineman in front of this whole group of industry people. And he said, well, you get to this line, you know, and it says, I need you more than want you. He says, wow. He says, you know, that almost sounds like a diss, you know, and everybody like laughed hysterically. And he said, but then, but then he says, he says, and I want you for a, all time. He, he says, yeah, he says, he I says, need you more than want you. What does that mean? Yeah, but he, and he <laughs> says, but he says uh, and I want you for all time. He says, you may have to blip this out. Jesus Christ, he really <laughs> loves her. You know, <clears throat> and um, he said that night, he said, to me, Wichita Lineman is emblematic of an ordinary man thinking extraordinary thoughts. And that's yeah. when the tears started rolling down yeah. my face because I thought, he really gets it, you know, and it was... Because you, because uh, I spend a lot of time exp- trying to explain my songs, you know, and and in that case, he did it for me. The Wichita lineman is still on the line. It's just so haunting. Thank I thank you, you for writing it. Oh. <laughs> We've talked about up, up and away a little bit here and there, uh, but it, you went to work for the Fifth Dimension essentially, and I have to tell you. I had not heard Up, Up, and Away for a long, long time until I started preparing to have you here. And I'd forgotten what a great song it is. And, and I forgot, I'd, I'd had it pigeonholed in the way that a lot of people, you were worried when it first came out, might pigeonhole it. Uh-huh. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. But I, I listened, uh, let's just listen to a little 
of Up, Up, and Away, and then talk about it. What I, what I hear is I hear the, the wrecking crew. I, I hear those guys functioning a, a, on a very, very, very high level. If you hear the little ripples in the acoustic guitar from Al Casey, and there's an elegance to the machinery of the music. You and I are probably about the same age, so I was, um, I was right there for that song. And I started hearing it come on the radio, and as, as you've... Uh, alluded to in the book, uh, what was fascinating about it is nobody second-guessed it. Nobody said, gee, why are they playing this coming out of a Turtle song or a, or a Rolling Stones song? Or it, it worked. People well, uh, uh, embraced it. Top 40 was an accommodating medium, and you would hear a Motown record, then you would hear the Weavers, then you would hear maybe... Uh, Otis Redding, then you, then you, then you might hear Johnny Rivers, uh, the Mamas and Papas, yeah. and it was in that way a completely inclusive uh, list of songs. It, it's only it's only lately that we've begun to really create discrete radio stations that only play the music that the people want to hear. Yeah, and I suppose that's the digital culture. We it can is, focus... It is, but it's unfortunate. Yeah. Because in those days, we, we were, we were uh, let's, uh, to put it bluntly, you know, white kids were exposed to black music. Yeah. Black kids were exposed to white music. It was very, to me, I think, a, a healing and a, and a coming together, which you sort of saw manifested... In the '60s, and in in at Monterey, and at the Flower, and in the Peace Movement, and there was there was a lot of togetherness. There was a lot of love and a lot of inclusiveness. And Top 40 was simply a mirror of that. And so, really, uh, Up, Up, and Away was, I would say, one of the most unlikely. Records, but it was a big, big hit. Because a it lot worked. of people said that sounds like a Broadway show yeah. to you know. Yeah, yeah, but it went right up the charts. Hey, while we're talking about songs like Up, Up and Away, Wichita, Lyman, any of when you years later listen to uh, songs that you've written, do you think to yourself, "Gee, I wish I'd done this instead of that at this moment in the song. I wish I'd changed the chorus. I wish I'd done more with the verse." Does that that still happen? Sometimes to you? I I wish I could rework the lyrics. You know, mm-hmm. like I I I was kind of I played fast and loose with the, with the rhymes sometimes I wasn't uh but then there's another part of me that says let well enough alone whatever whatever you did it was 
it was what you were supposed to do at that moment. Knowing what I know now, I'd go back and ruin the whole thing. You, know? <laughs> you, you don't wince sometimes at, at a moment where you hear something that you're like, oh, I can't believe well, I wrote I, that so and I'm stuck with it. There are times when I hear lyrics and I go, geez, I wish I'd have done that. Yeah. I wish I had a chance to do that again. Let's take another break right now. When we come back, Jimmy Webb tells us about his relationship with Richard Harris, who became a pop star when he recorded Webb's MacArthur Park. And just what do those lyrics mean anyway? Welcome back to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. My guest today is Jimmy Webb. He's one of America's most prolific and best-loved singer-songwriters. One of his biggest and most unlikely hits was MacArthur Park. The lyrics were a mystery to all who heard the song, and no one was really prepared to hear it sung by the Irish actor Richard Harris. But Webb had heard Harris perform in the Broadway musical Camelot and knew that he had the chops to keep singing. Webb talks about working with Harris in his book, The Cake in the Rain. Let's talk Richard Harris. We've left uh, MacArthur Park uh, for the latter part of the conversation. You got to know him. Um, you were invited to become a, uh, a contributor to a, a benefit that was going to have scenes from shows and poetry and that sort of, And he directed it, right? Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, a pageant is what I would call it. Uh, and it was basically an anti-war message it, uh, during, I would say, the height of the unhappiness over uh, Vietnam. Uh, and it was a Hollywood night, and there were some wa- wonderful people there. Bob Mitchum was there, Gene Simmons, Walter Pigeon, um, Edward G. Robinson, which is a big thrill for yeah. me to meet him, yeah. right? And I was just there with the other musicians uh, playing. But uh, Richard took a shine to me, started calling me Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb. He'd say, ah, Jimmy Webb. He'd said, after rehearsal tonight, let's go out. And he said, we'll, he said, we'll have some black velvets. And I, said, and I would say, well, I, what's a black velvet? And he said, oh, you've never had one, eh? He said, good. He says, I'm good to teach you. you Going know? on a bender with Richard Harris sounds like one of the most dangerous experiences you could possibly have. <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, well, just being in, in his company uh, was was highly dangerous because he was he was very combative, and uh, but at the same time, being in his company, I think was one of the great privileges of my life because he was truly larger than life. The producer of the association had come to you and talked to you about writing a big orchestral uh, uh, piece for them, a song for Top w- Forty Radio. And he had a he was producing an act called the Association, and I he said, "Do you think you could do that?" And I said, 
do I think I could do it? I mean, it was like, this was like my dream come true. Yeah, this was bringing together what you'd started all those years ago with the contestants layering in uh, orchestrations and... I want... You know the 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 elements of rock yeah. of of orchestra of uh, and in my case balladeering, which I still I was still a traditional old school songwriter, but I wanted to put all this stuff together. So I wrote it, and I I, I mean I I won't go into some dramatic story about how, how hard it was. It took me about two or three days to do it. You wrote MacArthur Park <laughs> yeah. in two or three days, and yeah. the entire what you think of it as a suite almost. I didn't do the arrangement. I just oh okay, you I just wrote, wrote the song. I, mean, Fine. I later did the arrangement. Okay. The truth is that right right at the one of the most dramatic parts of the song where it's it's going. I I was wearing like very very cheap jeans, and I ripped the seat out of my jeans, and and it, and it, and it sounded like. I'll leave it up to your imagination what it sounded like, and it came at a very crucial moment in the in the sort of you know meeting, and the association collapsed into hysterics, and the songwriter in me went, "Well, that's that. They're never going to cut. They're never going to cut that song." And they and they didn't. Yeah, I mean, at, at that point, they were a big hit. They were windy was kind of their big big yeah, song, but yeah. boy, what a mistake. So MacArthur Park ends up going it, to Richard it, well, Harris. Well, it ends up at the, on the bottom of my stack of songs because, um, you know, it's 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 a songwriter superstition. You know, if you play a song for somebody and they don't like it, you have a tendency to just, you know, maybe put bear, go out in the backyard and bury it. You know, so it doesn't contaminate any of your other songs. But I still had it around. I had it in the stack. I went over to London and played it for Richard. I had played everything else. And he said, what's that? And Jimmy went. And I got it out and um, spread it across the piano. It was like two great wings of a Boeing 747. And uh, I started trying to play it. And. I got to the part that said, MacArthur Park is melting in the dark, and he slapped the piano so hard. And I'm not going to do it right here because... Thank you. But uh, he slapped the piano, and he said, I'll have that Jimmy Webb. I will make a hit out of that, and I'll be a pop star. To this day, you wrote that song in the late 60s, I imagine. It's now 2017, and I imagine there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't say, what the heck are the lyrics of that song all about, right? That's followed you forever. Well, <clears throat> yes. Yes, it has, <laughs> and uh, I don't have an answer. It's like it's, it's like uh, uh, Van Dyke Parks was being like raked over the coals by Mike Love one day because of uh, the lyrics to Surf's Up. You know, uh, columnated ruins, domino, blah blah blah. You know, and and Mike Love was saying, "What the hell does this mean anyway? And how dare you write this?" And 
And Van Dyke Park's uh, reply was, I have no excuse, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But everything that you allude to in the lyrics, I think, actually existed in some way. Uh, There was a cake in the park. There's nothing in the song that I didn't witness. That's that's, what I'm saying. I saw everything. And I just incorporated it into the song. and, and, And yet, over the years, people have... They they are they are they seem to be genuinely bewildered by someone left the cake out in the rain. Who left the cake out in the rain? Why did they leave it out in the rain? Uh, and uh, so I've 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 written a small memoir called "The Cake and the Rain," and in that book I explain exactly how the song. And came we'll about. let people read it. We'll, we'll using that as a as a marketing tool. Oh, I get that. Now. <laughs> Never waiting for us, girl It ran one step ahead As we followed in the dance Between the parted pages And the press Still lost our fevered iron Like a striped pair of pants Your songs have been sung by such great artists over the years, and you have become famous for these wonderful orchestrations uh, that you do. But can I tell you what my favorite Jimmy Webb record is? Please. Ten Easy Pieces. Oh, thank you. And, and here's why. Um, because it's purely you. It is almost entirely you sitting at the piano, playing gorgeous arrangements of your own songs. And for anybody who thought that somehow you couldn't be a singer, that record, which I think came out in the mid-90s, right? Somewhere yeah. around there. I actually had a partner on that record, Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look at that record with pride? I'm very, you know what, it, it actually turned my career around because I, the struggle was, I'll tell you what is really important about that record. I had never sung those songs, those hit songs before. And Freddie Mollen, he had to twist my arm to get me to sing by the time I get to Phoenix and worse that can happen and all that. But it came, it was a kind of an acknowledgement, an owning of, yeah, you know, yes, he was my boyfriend, you know. Yes, I wrote these songs. I wrote all of these songs, you know, and uh, they're different. Some of them are different. They're not just rock and roll. They're, this is what I, this is what I've done. Thank you so much, Jimmy Webb, for being here. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I still see her dark eyes glowing. She was 21 when I left Galveston. 
Galveston, oh Galveston I still hear your sea waves crashing Jimmy Webb's memoir is called The Cake and the Rain in honor of those mystifying lyrics of MacArthur Park. The paperback edition will be published this summer. By the way, while Richard Harris sang the song first, in the years since, an eclectic list of artists have recorded it too, including Diana Ross and the Supreme. Spring was never waiting for us born And ran one step ahead As we followed in a dance Outlaw country star Waylon Jennings Between the parted pages and were pressed In love's hot fevered eye Like a striped pair of pants Elvis Presley, Carmen McRae, The Four Tops, The Disco Fox Girls and dozens of others. But Webb will probably be remembered best for his long association with Glenn Campbell, who died on August 8th of Alzheimer's disease. Even as Campbell's illness reached its final stages, his family released one last album two months before he died. Campbell had recorded it in 2013 when he was already largely incapacitated. Still, he rallied and made a record that featured 12 of his favorite songs, four of them by Jimmy Webb, including the title track of the record, Adios. We never really made it, baby But we came pretty close Adios, adios Webb had written that song back in the early 90s for Linda Ronstadt. When he heard the new version of Adios on Campbell's final album, he told Rolling Stone magazine that he and Campbell used to play the song all the time. He said, we played it in dressing rooms, hotels, we played it over at his house, we played it at my house. He always loved that song. I heard Adios this morning, and my wife and I both broke down and cried. We've posted information about Jimmy Webb's memoir on the Two-Way Street website at gpb.org slash TWS, and you'll find it on our Facebook page, too. We're just about out of time for today's show, but remember, if you can't be with us when we're on the radio, there are other ways to listen. You can subscribe to the Two-Way Street podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, all of our shows since we went on the air way back in 2014 are archived at our website, gpb.org slash TWS. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund. Jenny edited this week's show. Our producer is Olivia Reingold, and our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you again next week for another Two-Way Street. Oh.